Yo ho ho! I be Captain Chessbeard, and this be a special episode of the Tuesday Night Podcast. In this 34th episode, SPJ, that shark bait, couldn't be with us here. But no worries, because we were able to hornswoggle Anthony Birch to be our guest host. <laughs> and to my chagrin, that jellyfish bone Sean McCoy is indeed on today's ship. And without the Sharkbait SBJ to keep this crew in line, he also isn't available to edit the audio you hear tingling your ears. So, if ye have a problem with the quality, then ye have a problem with me. Gear, cause it is I, Captain Chessbeard, that is editing this here adventure. Join us and biscuit-eating Anthony Birch as we discuss such topics as the creation of World Championship Russian Roulette. Why is there not a single scary board game? Casual racism. A whole lot of video games. And of course, tabletop games. So let's set sail, weigh anchor, and hoist the mizzen on this 34th episode of the Tuesday Night Podcast. Gear! Hey everybody, uh, this is Anthony Birch. I'm a guest host for the Tuesday Night Games podcast, which is a podcast about unenthusiastic-sounding guest hosts and also board games and card games and tabletop <laughs> games. <laughs> yeah, that's about right. SBJ hates us so much because we only have interesting people on when he's gone. Uh, sorry, SBJ. Hey, I'm Alan Girding from Tuesday Night Games. Who else is with us? Uh, Sean McCoy, I'm here. And as always, we have Captain Chessbeard in the background. He's the guy who tries to keep us on time, whatever. But, whoa, Anthony Birch. Hey. Uh, we're recording this on Sunday, and on Tuesday is a launch of your game, sir, on Kickstarter. I'm pretty excited. It's the game you guys helped me make. It's not my game. It's... You guys did, did a hell of a lot of the design heavy lifting. <laughs> Yeah, but let's be really honest here. If you had never shown us this game, we wouldn't be here talking right now about a Kickstarter launch on Tuesday, for sure. Yeah, but if you guys hadn't made the game good, then we also wouldn't be talking about the Kickstarter launch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, you're a big deal. I will be totally honest and say that I didn't realize how big of a deal you were, and then I totally fell in love with you. But for those few listeners that may not know who you are, you mind giving us your virtual business card, your auditory business card at Google? Sure. Um, so I uh, have done a, a web series, a comedy web series with my sister called Hey Ash, What You Playing? for the past six or seven years. I was at Gearbox uh, from 2010 to 2015, and I was the lead writer on Borderlands 2 and all of its DLC. And I co-wrote Borderlands the pre-sequel, and then I wrote some stuff for the Tales from the Borderlands game and a uh, very, very small amount on Battleborn. And now I'm at Rocket Jump. I was lead writer of the Rocket Jump the show. And now I'm working on the Rocket Jump Shorts program, and I uh, came up with the idea for uh, World Championship Russian Roulette. Nice. I didn't realize you did some writing for Battleborn. Oh, man. Very small amount. Very, Very small, small amount. Yeah. Very cool. Sean, how do you know Anthony? Uh, through Donald, who we talk about all the time on this show, Donald 
emailed me and was like, hey, I've got a friend. He's working on a thing. Um, could I connect you guys? Is that weird? And I said, no. And then uh, as I talked about last time, Anthony and I emailed back and forth a couple times. And then I came over to Dallin's house to play some games. And I was like, hey, I'm Sean. And he was like, hey, I'm Anthony. I was like, that's crazy. I just met a guy named Anthony. And <laughs> Donald was like, yeah, that's him, you fucking idiot. <laughs> but it took me a good 15 minutes to put that together. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Donald's a, Donald's a real piece of shit. That's all I have to say about that. Yeah. Yeah, we have yet to have Donald on the show, but that will happen at some point. Good. Keep it that way. This is a high-quality podcast, so long as his lips never touch a microphone that's connected to this. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you guys are friends. Yeah, we're very good friends. I love Donald and Nikki. Very cool. Hey, I hope I can crush on you a little bit here, because as I admitted, I was, I, I didn't know who Anthony Birch was until Sean Barber like, oh yeah, he does this. I'm like, alright, let me look this up and show. So I started watching Hey Ash, what you playing? Of course, grinded through them all, subscribe, and since then have only become more and more enamored with you. I was really impressed with just your, first of all, let's get this out of the way, extremely good looking. I'm not trying to make you too embarrassed or blush <laughs> or anything like all that. Right. Yeah, so uh, when I got to meet you during the video, I already thought you were good looking, even more good looking in person, and charismatic as all hell, and just a real down-to-earth gentleman. I can't believe how humble you are with the game, too, because you came to us with a game with a gun deck, one of them's a bullet, action cards, like, no, you guys, you guys, but you really never have given yourself it feels like enough credit of like how much this game is your baby anyway i was just really impressed with how nice and kind i didn't feel awkward or strange and yet inside i was geeking out and one of my highlights was what getting to see you open up like the beta type of it and crack it open it's pretty nice so thank you for being you sir thank you thanks for saying all those nice things that i don't agree with (laughs) okay (laughs) But there's more nice stuff, too, because I was going to go over some listener feedback about you. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. So this is some interesting thing, because they didn't. this writer didn't even know that you would be on this podcast. But long story short, I give you a lot of props for the casual racism episode that came to light during the Rocket Jump show, behind the scenes of their web series. And I watched it on Hulu, believe it or not. Yeah, so uh, we were basically filming a, a short about um, Freddy sort of getting taken in by a group of escapees from a lab. And the idea was that these escapees had, like, lived off the land for a while and were, you know, wearing, um, you know, stuff that they just sort of found. And then I was playing one of the escapees, and on the day, right as we were about to film the final shot of a five-hour shoot, I went, hey, is this racist? Is this weird? And then... (laughs) We brought the footage back, and we were all looking at it, like, yeah, this is definitely racist. This is weird. This is really this is really messed up. And so that kicked off a pretty long uh, conversation about casual racism and how, you know, was it anybody's fault? If it was, does that make us bad people? All that kind of stuff. Um, we eventually decided to reshoot that scene at a not insignificant cost. Now I get to act like I'm 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 completely free of racism because I'm looking at everyone. <laughs> yeah, racism free. No, it was, it was a great insight because of the resistance that was shown. I think by some people too. I'm not racist. Like I, my intentions are totally loving and accepting. And the hard conversation was, yeah, intentions are great, but this is the definition of casual racism: is you have these go-to things you don't even realize you're doing. And that was really powerful. And we talked about it on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And the cool thing was, here's one email from Bill Wetzel. It's a lot about 
our podcast, but here he goes. Uh, it says, hey, the Tuesday Night Podcast is awesome. It's fun, informative, and fascinating for a long list. And casually of- racist. And casually racist for a long list of reasons. I think that you're going to find this really cool, by the way. This is why I'm reading this. Okay. Some of which I'll share in the near future. I wanted to mention that your podcast has prompted a couple of interesting conversations with both students at the school I teach at and friends who listen. Friends and I recently discussed the idea of adopting the term partner and how that shifts the social narrative. When Matt Lees was on, we talked about how we should use the term partner instead of wife or husband, etc. So he used the term partner, and anyway, that was a conversation. Anyways, getting back to the letter. Students have weighed in on the idea of elevator pitching while in character and other students who are discovering the tabletop landscape reference to your podcast as an entertaining intro to the design-slash-publishing universe. I'm also finding the conversation around casual racism very valuable in the classroom as well. So besides the design and business decisions that are very interesting, it's very educational in my classroom. So awesome on so many levels. P.S. Captain Chessbeard should have an autographed limited edition of World Championship Russian Roulette and probably have a Twitter feed. So that was Bill Wetzel, and he's actually a professor. She teaches game design at a college, so that's why he listens to it. That's super. That's really, really exciting. Yeah, it was really cool that this is actually an educational tool. I never thought it, especially considering how much we swear. Am I right, Sean? (laughs) Fuck yeah! But... I'm excited about the Kickstarter. Sean, we've been working pretty hard on the Kickstarter. Um, I don't know. Adam McIver and Weberson have been doing the bulk of the heavy lifting. It's been a lot of... It's been a transition just since... I think I was telling you earlier, in Two Rooms and a Boom, you know, we had access to all the assets all the time. We were making everything. Um, and it was our first game, so there was a lot more insecurity and stress about whether this was going to pan out. Um, this time it's a lot more organizing and managing, you know, just like making sure everybody gets, you know, making sure everybody gets their feedback in and then making sure that like, you know, everybody's moving on time or all that sort of stuff because there's a lot of moving pieces now with like tutorial videos and getting graphics up for the Kickstarter page. And so it's a totally different beast that I'm used to. But the amazing thing is everybody involved has been really talented and really good. So, you know, the the fear that somebody's going to produce something shitty and that we're going to have to have a hard conversation about like, hey, this is not too good hasn't sort of arisen at all, I don't think. I'm really excited to show Anthony the new artwork from Weberson and awesome the, graf- the graphic design by Adam McGyver, too. It's going to be sleek. Sean actually sent some of it to me already. Oh, you've seen too it? Late. Dude, what did you think? I think it's really, really good. I love it. It looks like it's this great mix of like classy and also dark and slightly seedy. Like it just looks like, I don't know. It reminds me of, of this is going to sound like an insult because I don't know if those movies are any good, but it makes me think of the way that I hope the purge, I wish the purge was where it's like, I know what you're talking about. There's something like, like, like Roman and like, like Caligulan about it of like, look at all the, all the, the gold filigree we put on this little thing. That's about a man shooting himself in the head kind of thing. (laughs) Right. Really cool. Every time I see a Purge trailer, I'm always like, I hope that movie's good, because it looks like it could be real bad real quickly, mm-hmm. but they make it look like, I get I get what you're talking about. That could be really fun. I love the character designs he's got, these like, little dark, they're like almost Edward Gorey, mixed with like Mike Mignola from Hellboy. It's great. I'm yeah. really excited. Really excited. It was a tough choice. Adam McIver, uh, the graphic designer, recommended a bunch of different artists, and we went back and forth on them. And they had a bunch of different things going for them, um, from notoriety of like how big their name was, to cost effectiveness, to how eager they were to work on the project. But one of the cool things about Weberson in the board game world is that like he has this kind of big following because of Brazilian coup. The Brazilian version of the game coup, people <laughs> just love the art from. It's so weird. Um, but he did that. And I think 
Alan, did you say Travis is actually going to just release that as just another version of Coup? Yeah, yeah. He either ran a Kickstarter or you can just get it. Yeah, the Brazilian version of Coup. So wait a double dip. You can sell Coup and now you can buy the Brazilian version. Travis doesn't do anything that's not a surefire sell too. So I'm sure if he's putting out a completely new art version of one of his best-selling games, it's a good decision. But he's been great to work with. It'll be I'll hear like nothing from him for like a week. And, you know, there's a language barrier there. And I'll send an email and I'll say, hey, just checking in. want to see how you're doing. Did you have any questions? Because I'll send these just massive wall of text emails like this is what we're looking for. And these are the, you know, manufacturing constraints we're working under and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, he'll just be like, hello, Sean, how are you? I hope you enjoy these. <laughs> and then he'll, you know, have a full draft of the art. And it's, you know, he's just really, really good. Speaking of which, Anthony, have you played Coup? I have, and I don't like it that much. Hey, you're allowed to crap on anything you want to in our podcast. No matter how much crapping you do, there's no way you could spread more turds than SBJ. SBJ gets down on a lot of games. Okay, well, I think I've also... Isn't there... There's an expansion or, like, a different cooler version of Coup called something else that's like... Like GS4 or... So GS4 is where people have random characters that go in and complete disclosure, I haven't played that yet. There's also the first expansion which makes it kind of team-based which really kicked it up to more enjoyable where everyone playing is on one team or the other and it alternates between players. So you're either on red team or blue team and you can't do anything offensive for someone on your team. But you can spend the currency, I don't know what the currency is, Buckazoid, whatever. You can spend a currency to f- change teams. Oh, cool. Yeah, and it really just mm, kicks it up because I'm in your boat. First time playing, I'm like, uh, especially like the last two turns. I already know who won. There's no way I can win this. Yeah, Vanilla Coup is like, it's it, it feels like a, a hypothetical pitch for a real game. It, it, it's mm, like, like a proof oh, of concept. Yeah, like imagine you're playing a game where you're lying about what you can do and people call you out on it, but the punishment for getting for 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 calling somebody out is so so damaging that I at least for me I've played about ten games of Coup and almost never does anybody get called out on something unless it's a person going this is boring I want to call somebody out. It's never a strategic thing. Everybody's just too scared to say bullshit. I'm calling you out. And, like, have anything result from it. And usually, the vast majority of the time that does happen, where they do call somebody out, it turns out the person wasn't lying. People are so scared of lying, too. Everybody's, it's like, it's like, it's like resistance if everyone was telling the truth all the time, or, or <laughs> one night ultimate werewolf, if there were no werewolves. Um, but it feels, it's always, it's always felt like there's something there. I love the, like, elegance of, like, you only have these two cards, you know, it's very love lettery in that way. I just like things that have a limited number of pieces and stuff, but, yeah, I think I need to try out Rebellion and all the other stuff, because it feels like there's something there that's just never quite clicked for me. That brings us to a great topic for the episode, and that's figuring out your gaming cred. Excuse me, Sam, do you have the time? But of course, it be topic time. Obviously, you've played a lot of video games, I'm assuming, right, Anthony? You're known as a video game guy. Yeah, yeah. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big video game but guy. But you just dropped <laughs> Coup, and you mentioned ten times. That's not just, yeah, one time at this one place at some someone's house, someone brought this kind of game, Coup. No, you're like, I played it ten times, and you had valuable feedback for Coup. And then you dropped Resistance and Werewolf. So, this is the way it's going to work. Sean and I are going to name games, and then you simply say if you've played it or not. Okay. You ready for this? Sure. Chess. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I suck ass at it. actually the um god i can't remember the name of it now but there's a game that came out that's like just recently it's a two-player game it's like kind of asian themed like kung fu onitama 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 yeah. is like chess that i can enjoy i've, I've yeah that's uh, my, my old company life. arcane wonders 
I love Onitama so much. I feel like I understand what makes chess enjoyable now, because chess, when I played it a lot as a kid to try to get good at it, because like, this is a game I'm good at games, and then slowly realized, oh, this is not something I can ever get good at, because you have to be thinking about so many things at the same time, and Onitama simplifies it down to just, like, there's only these five moves, that's it. I love that. Onitama looks really cool. They did a really good job on that. It's looking beautiful, too. But I'm starting to worry that your geek cred's bigger than mine. So uh, how about Dominion? I love Dominion. I played Dominion for years and years and years. Oh, my goodness. All right. Um, See, the funny thing was Matt Lee's stumped. All right, Sean, you have one for him? Sure. uh, Axis and Allies. I've never played that. Yeah, generally, when it comes to big war ones, I, I, I've never found a lot of people that are super into playing that stuff with me. I would—I had always thought like big games like that. I would love to try if I had like a couple people who were into it. Like, all right, it's Saturday. Let's just like break out one of these games and see why people love it. Right. Um, but it's very group dependent, right? Like, yeah, you need people that are cool with like, yeah, this is just going to be our weekend. You don't—you don't want because like, right. I have a couple of friends that are super hardcore board gaming dudes, especially dudes at Rocket Jump, Freddie Wong, and Matt Arnold, and all those guys are like super into board games. But you need like five or six people who are like, I will lose a weekend to play Twilight Imperium if you're going to do that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. That's always been my hurdle for Axis and Allies, too. Someone says, hey, do you have your life to give up for a little bit? And it's... Yeah. It's just... You want to be one step closer to the grave and then play a game that we probably won't understand fully the first time and get most of the rules wrong and you might not like it? Do you want to do that and then maybe try again next week and then play it actually so lose two weekends of your life? Is that something you're interested in? (laughs) Lords of Catan. Uh, nope, nope, never. I've actually, I, I did a weird thing where I kind of skipped over the, like, gateway games. I never played Settlers of Catan. I've still never played Settlers of Catan somehow. Notice I said Lords of Catan, and you didn't fall for that trap at all. Boom! You even corrected oh, me. Was that, is that not a real game? You know what? I don't even know. It is Settlers of Catan. You totally got that right. Anyways, so you haven't played Settlers of Catan. <laughs> I, I just assumed it was, like, a, a faster-paced, cool two-player <laughs> version of, Lord, of Settlers of Catan, like the Seven Wonders Duel or something like that. <laughs> oh, God, I hate Seven Wonders. I do too! What? Yeah. Oh my goodness, you guys! Three people that hate Seven Wonders. SBJ loves Seven Wonders. It's crazy. I don't like any game where you can't find out if you're winning until the end when it's over. (laughs) Yeah, I I feel like we must be the ones who are wrong, because every single person I know likes Seven Wonders. But I played uh, Blood Rage, and I was like, oh, this is like Seven Wonders, but but something I, I like. Like, it took the, the, the card drafting thing and then made it a, a part of a greater whole where the information is visible on the table rather than just something that's like exactly what you said, where it's like, I have no idea what this guy's holding, I have no idea what this person's holding, so I guess we'll just see. <laughs> right, yeah. A lot of people love Blood Rage. Blood Rage is great. It's a little bit imbalanced in favor of, of all things uh, suicide, but other than that, it's a pretty good game. Jeez Louise. All right. You know what? Let's just uh, switch this because you've already, you're invincible, obviously. You know your <laughs> stuff. What have you been playing lately? It's time for a table talk. I have been playing uh, some of Pandemic Legacy, which I enjoy very much. Uh, I need to spend more time on it uh, and make sure it doesn't go the way of all my Risk Legacy games. My five different started Risk Legacy games, I've still never finished one. Oh, wow. Can you play Pandemic Legacy or Risk Legacy seriously, or is it is it hard to, like... Like, obviously, there's a way they want you to play. They want you to take it seriously. They want you to, like, you know, care about the tactics in the world. But, like, when you get a group of, like, six funny people together, it's hard not to be, like, you know, the fart munchers versus the booty lickers or whatever, right? I think it's difficult for Risk Legacy because Risk Legacy is competitive, and I think that's not a very conducive... That's not a very... That design doesn't go well with the legacy idea because the whole point is everybody's sitting down because they want to open these envelopes together and see what happens. They're not actually like 
I don't know if anybody who hasn't played at least one or two games of Legacy that's like, let's just go for this one. Even though we're supposed to be against each other, let's go for, for whatever it takes to open this one thing by having five cities or whatever the fuck. Um, but it makes the, it, like, it, 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 that, I think the cooperative nature of Pandemic Legacy makes the humor that you put into it feel more legit. Because you're all being silly and going, haha, what if we name this character Smellery Charterfield instead of Ellery Porterfield, who's our <laughs> friend? And then you're like, haha, this is all fun. And then you open a thing as a group and it goes, now this game has X in it and it's going to fuck all of you over. And you go, no, why did we not take this more seriously? Like it like it gives you a character <laughs> arc for your for your table because it's all of you working together and stuff. And the game so makes you respect it in that way. Yeah, yeah. It like teaches you to love it. And like as you go on, you're like. You know, there's 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 a moment where you're like, oh my god, Smellery Charterfield, you have to save us, and you're like, everything's relying on this, and this silly choice you made at the beginning of the game is now involved in this incredibly tense, incredibly important moment later on. I love that kind of shit. So they nailed it. They like, no matter what you do to sort of subvert it, like it just pulls you further and further into its world. Uh, role playing games work a lot like that. You have, I mean, for every like time that I've had to roll for players like, how big is that kobold's dick? Like, there's been that time where, like, the huge dicked kobold, like, died sacrificing himself so that everybody could live, and they were like, no, big dick. Um, yeah, because I mean, honestly, like, if you can get people laughing at something, that endears that thing to those people a lot more than if you were just trying to be straight-faced the whole time and hope that they care. Yeah. No, I think you're right. What else have you been playing besides Pandemic Legacy? Uh, I've been DMing uh, a fate game uh, with the, the, my friends that I live with, and um, I don't think I'm doing it correctly. Uh, we were going to make a podcast out of it, uh, but we're waiting until we have new episodes of Hey Ash uh, released, which is going to be a little bit for them to come out. So I've just been doing what will probably be about four or five episodes of just a very, very incorrect DMing. Um, but it's been insanely fun. What are you learning about DMing from running it? Um, I'm mainly learning that because my, my worry coming in is like, oh, no, I don't know the exact, like, micro of how I'm supposed to solve these certain situations and, like, da-da-da-da. And what I'm learning with, at least with Fate, because I haven't really DM'd any, like, D&D fifth ed, um, what I'm learning with Fate is that it doesn't matter. Fate is the the most limited, minimalist amount of rules possible to basically get you into a an improvisational comedy session with your friends. Mm-hmm. And, like, anytime something happens where somebody has a cool idea, I'm like, cool, we get a plus one to this role. And they feel like, cool, that's enough of a, a crunchy statistical thing that i now have made the role-playing part of this or the, the gamey part of this like been it's now satisfying like i'm incentivized yeah i'm incentivized to have done a thing and i don't feel like you're just going cool it doesn't change anything like it's, j- it's just enough of a little treat at the end of them doing a fun role-playing thing that they feel like they're incentivized to do it essentially which is great and as opposed not- to just like sitting around a table and being like what if there was a guy with a sword and we just roll from there like right and because you get kind of makes you all feel like assholes if they're like what if um uh it was really tall and i go okay and nothing else changes i guess you're tall it's like well then there's no point <laughs> like right. you, it, it has the bare minimum of a game to make what you are feel the like stakes the choices are... exactly yeah yeah that makes sense i'm loving it though it's, it's one of the most fun things we've, uh, we've done in a while you're a big fan of uh netrunner right I love Netrunner. I haven't played it in quite a while. I got behind on the expansions, but I love Netrunner. It's hard to find people to play with. I need to just bite the bullet and go down to the you know local store, Madness. Yeah, and... yeah I, I did that for a little while. I went to Tuesday night Netrunner at Madness, and it was fine. It was people fine. were cool. It was fine. Yeah, they were nice. I mean, it was just it just it's more fun to play Netrunner with people that you know. So it's like yeah, Netrunner does the hard thing, right? It it sort of fully realizes um, a thematic world in a very you know, limited way, but, like, the whole idea behind, like, cyberpunk, this idea of, like, hacking and going on runs and, you know, customizing a deck, they've somehow found a way to do that 
in like a card game, which is which is insane to me because other than like playing like Shadowrun or Cyberpunk 2020 in a role playing game, there are very few good cyberpunk games out there that really hit the nail on the head. I honestly think they're very. I, 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 what's flabbergasting to me is that Netrunner. I feel like there are almost no good cyberpunk anything. I think cyberpunk, much like steampunk, are one of those things where we all enjoy the world, but we can't point to like a really good example of it that's actually legitimately great. On it's its like own Blade merits. Runner, and that's it, right? And even Blade Runner is not really cyberpunk. It's kind of just noir in a sci-fi setting. It's not. There's no hacking in Blade Runner or anything like that's that. That's true. Corporations. It's like it's like you talk about film noir, you can be like, oh, The Big Sleep's incredible. You talk about like westerns you go oh you know there's a million good westerns but you think about cyberpunk it's like uh neuromancer is kind of good but like netrunner actually (laughs) hits all the stuff Netrunner actually hits all the stuff that's supposed to be good about cyberpunk and it's a card game like i would put it against the best cyberpunk movies and books and all that as a fantastic example example of what cyberpunk is supposed to feel like because the asymmetric nature of of the game and how as a corporation you just feel like this this powerhouse that's that's got all these secrets and got all these defenses and as the runner you feel like this little shit that's subverting things and stealing points like it's just it's perfect and the more they go on and the more they make new characters and the more they make more programs and stuff the thematic underpinnings of them just get more and more and more rich and more flabbergastingly useful this is a weird element like it's difficult and it's got a learning curve which also reinforces the cyberpunk theme you want to think that like cyberpunk isn't just like for everybody, I know that's so sort of weird and anti-populist in a way. Part of the beauty of it is like these are hard jobs. You're a hacker, you know what I mean? If it was a yeah, party totally. game, it wouldn't reinforce like the experience you were going for. Right, and they've made like party game versions in the Netrunner universe, and they don't feel as cyberpunk. Like if you play, um, man, I can't remember what it's called. They were just released a new one that's basically about like uh, putting little lines on a board of grids and like and like marking off your territory and stuff and it's very easy and very simple to get into and they're like this is like hacking oh man okay mm. uplink or something but they did like netrunner android and and all those sort of other spin-off games in that same universe right um but but like netrunner is easily the most thematic feeling one because of yeah there's something about the difficulty of it and because you you want to imagine you know in a in a in a cyberpunk universe that a hacker is a guy who's worked really really hard building his rig and is in a the bottom of a of a seedy apartment drinking energy drinks and shit like that and netrunner just gets that feeling so well yeah mainframe is the one that just came out recently cyberpunk isn't about swashbuckling right it's not about like high adventure on the high seas it's hard and it's gritty you know which is why like you shouldn't make a simulationist pirate game you know you should make Mm -hmm. a pirate game that's like i'm sailing my boat around and shooting at you guys because that's what pirates feel like you know but if it's like well are you tilting your genoa sail into the wind or whatever like it's like this isn't fun that's not being a pirate don't talk shit about pirates it's always amazing to me when (laughs) any board game at all manages to get the feel of a fantasy right because you're working with you're, you're working with just rules and artwork like video games get to cheat like Oh, we have graphics, we have music, and we have all these, you know, we, we, I look at the ambient inclusion of the lighting and stuff to make you feel like you're in, you know, the fantasy. But video, but, but board games have to have the rules themselves feel like they're fulfilling that fantasy, which is a gajillion times harder. So the fact that Netrunner can do it so well. I was asking Chris Bryan about it, I've talked to Alan about it, and I'm curious your thoughts on about it. But, like, it is hard to forget in a board game that you're playing a product that somebody made and sold to you because you're constantly interacting with the proof of that product existing, right? The components. Yeah. Whereas, like, in a video game or a movie or a book, like, you slowly get drawn into the world because it's so visually stimulating or whatever. But I can't think of a single board game that is scary to play that I would be scared to play. Yeah, no, definitely not. I've, I've, I've played stressful board games. I've right. played right. tons of stressful 
I've never been scared by a board game. The closest thing we can think of are the social games like Resistance where you're lying and you know that you're totally falling apart in front of people because you suck at lying. But that's not fear, right. that's stress. Have I talked about single-player hide-and-go-seek on the podcast yes. before, Yeah, Alan? we had that. It was okay. on our Halloween episode. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Single-player hide-and-go-seek is amazing. But, like, uh, that's something, man, I've been racking my brains about because I feel like if we could solve that, we could make a ton of money. <laughs> but, <laughs> like, uh, those sort of experiences, that fantasy element is very, very difficult to overcome in a board game. Yeah, I mean, it's very hard to make immersive board games in any sense. It's 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 hard to get people. I mean, even when I play D and D, it's it's that's a game that's all about immersion. And the only thing that my instinct tells me and all my friends to do is to make dick jokes. There's just something more yeah. fun about taking it in that direction. And even the guys, I mean, there was a I think a TED talk by one of the designers of D and D who's like, yeah, we know, we know everybody plays our game as a comedy, but we have to pretend that we that that's not the case because if we act like our game's a comedy then suddenly there's no straight man and it's not funny for you to pretend it's comedy anymore because right. trying to force jokes yeah. down your throat. But if we, pretend we're, if we pretend we're serious, then you can make fun of it and then you feel really smart. So that's better for us to pretend that we take our world seriously, even though we all know we don't. Like, it's not fun to make jokes during Munchkin or right. Kobold's at My Baby or any of those games. Yeah, yeah nobody, nobody jokes during that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to fight against it would be weird to, like, put on music and be like, no, everybody will do screen time once an hour for ten minutes. It's like, you're here to just have fun with your friends. Just do what's fun for them, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 the social component. I mean, honestly, if you think about, like, okay, there are no scary board games, there are also generally, I can't think of any scary co-op game video games either. And because the other person, the, 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 the scariest, the only games that are video games that are actually scary are generally single-player things uh, because loneliness is such a big part of, of fear. And the second you add another person to, like, Dead Space 3, it's like, oh, this is fine. Like, we have There's each other to rely on. It's no big deal. Right. The, I, I will say it's not cooperative for sure, but Left for Dead being one of the zombies on the other side of that versus being one of the survivors, that it did have that fear element for me at some points. Uh, mm. Of course, then you get the people that are amazing at it and just falls apart. But I, I hear you as far as cooperative, where you're both together and you're both scared. And maybe that's because you're both in it together making dick jokes while you're sitting on the couch. I don't know. Mm-hmm. The closest I've gotten is playing Amnesia uh, while Reed sat behind me and knew the scary things were going to happen but <laughs> wouldn't tell me. That's and it's great. just like, is there going to be a guy in there? And he's like, I don't know. you got to open the door. <laughs> like, I don't want to open the door, Reed. <laughs> I had a friend who uh, was so petrified of scary video games. He's just terrified of them. would start screaming and literally run away from the computer. He would play. Uh, he was playing a game called Fear, an older, older shooter game called Fear oh, wow. that was mainly just a gunfight game. And I was like, man, there's this one great... I, I didn't realize how scary he was at the time. And I told him there's this one great scare where you're going down a ladder, and the way the animation for, for going down a ladder is for a split second your character looks down at their feet, and then they look back up as they go down. And there's one time where you use a ladder where you look down, and then you look back up, and uh, the scary girl is just standing right in front of you, and it actually surprised me. And he was so petrified that I told him that, that he spent the entire rest of the game leaping off ladders instead of using them. He, like, just obliterating his health, just jumping off of ledges instead of using ladders. Like, fuck it, I'm not taking the risk, not worth it. <laughs> That's so weird. Yeah, I don't think I was ever more scared in a video game, uh, because I won't play them, um, than uh, when we played, like, the Silent Hill 1 demo from PlayStation Magazine at my friend Andy's house, and he was like, let's open all the windows and turn off all the lights. <laughs> and it was like, it's a video game, who cares? I mean, opening the windows isn't going to change anything. But then, like, looking at that now, it's like, how could you even tell that that was a 
what do you call it? A wheelchair knocked on its side. It's like 17 pixels. Yeah. Was that the first time you ever scared in a video game with Silent Hill? Was that your like your scary cherry pop? For me, yeah. What about for you, Anthony? Uh, Resident Evil 2. Oh, man. I took it back to Blockbuster because I couldn't keep playing it. <laughs> it's adorable. It's adorable. It wasn't even that it actually... It wasn't that it scared me, it was that I knew it was going to scare me. I could feel it coming. Oh, it was like, it was like, the a, anticipation. you know, in a horror movie where you get the anticipation thing, but I never, it never did too many jump scares. So it was like, I was getting the anticipation moment for like four hours at a time. I was like, I can't do this. No, no. That's something that I'm curious about about video games because I think what makes Resident Evil 2 so scary is the whole pre-rendered background thing. You always have to walk off the edge of a screen and now we're in a new shot and we're in this shot now. But now that, you know, we can have fully realized 3D environments, you know, over the shoulder forever, there's there's no incentive to frame things for people, which doesn't necessarily decrease the horror. I mean, like, amnesia is inter- terrifying. Um, so is uh, alien isolation, that kind of thing. But it's one of those things where literally the limitations of the platform, I feel like, make that game scarier. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was, the constraints really help. And, I mean, God, Silent Hill 1, like, the most iconic image from any of the Silent Hill games is the fog. The creepy mm-hmm. fog that includes the, the, you know, the entire city. And that's, that wasn't like a creative choice so much as it was like, well, the PlayStation draw distance is shit. So we can have you walk around this fully 3D environment, but we can only have you see about two inches in front of your face because we can't render anything beyond that. Oh, that's interesting. That makes total sense. That's Alone in the Dark was the first scare game oh. for me. And I know I'm dating myself now. Because that was back on the PC in the early 90s, I want to say. Mm-hmm. It had these environments that were all enclosed. You start in the attic, which is kind of scary in of itself. Like, you have to, the whole goal of the game is to get out. And I don't remember why, but you start in the attic. And the controls were horrible. The views were horrible. But we didn't know because we had no basis of comparison. For, in my mind, that was the first horror-themed game like that. There were scary moments in adventure games like Space Quest and King's Quest. But this was the entire game was scare, scare, scare. Part of it was... It's it's embarrassing to look back now because it's so polygon crap. Like, it's laughable. Mm. How did I ever find this scary? But it really did work. And I guess going back to the original point, how could you even begin to translate that into a board game? I have no idea. Yeah. I feel like the conversation killer. <laughs> like, I jump in and I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> it's honestly, like, the more I think about it, the more I think that you guys might be the perfect people to solve that problem because it would have to... Because, like, the thing that makes Two Rooms at a Boom really special to me is less so the cards and the stuff that happens inside the rooms, but more that moment where somebody moves from one room to another. You know, right. it's, that, it's that huge, like, physical transition point that makes it feel, like, special. And the reason why I would say, like, no, 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 it doesn't matter if you play Werewolf. This is something different that you want to try it out. Like, I'm sure Especially when you're that person. Oh, yeah. When you're switching rooms, there's that, like, okay, it's on me. Even though, like, it's not on you. There's, you know, 20 other people playing this game. But you mm-hmm. feel like it's on you because you're changing. Like, things are changing for you. Yeah, and you get to walk into a room full of people and have zero information. And you're like, oh, fuck, am I screwed? Who are these people? All the, you know, there's, the, there's something about the physicality of that that it feels like there's... That's if there's if there is a key to unlocking the scary board game, if that's even a box that can be opened and not just right. like an impossible uh, uh, challenge, then I think physicality will probably play some part in it. Yeah, physicality. Yeah, moving around. I feel like it'll be the thing. It, it'll have to start at conventions where people will be like, "Yeah, don't go up to that room because they're playing this game there and it's fucking weird and it's creepy and don't do it." You know, like yeah. that'll have to be the message that gets out. Not like, "Yeah, go buy that box. It's got blood on it and it's got a yeah. scary font." There's a, like there's a spooky that's not skull. It. You have yeah. to be thinking totally differently about it. 
Yeah, you want it to feel like the old, you know, the, the murderer game where you just, you know, uh, wink at somebody and then they die right. five seconds later. Kind of, it's got to feel something like that or something. My brother said that we would have to divorce ourselves as a company from the game, put it up on an old HTML GeoCities website, and pretend oh, yeah. like it's something somebody made a long time ago, yeah. and then just slowly break it out to people. But commerce, commerce would directly, yeah, it would directly hinder, you know, the fear. I think it's something more along the lines of Pandemic Legacy because now you can buy the mm. uh, escape rooms in a box. So there's different companies that are trying to come out with... You guys know escape rooms, right? You pay... By, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 of course. So escape rooms in a box. So you try to get out. But now it comes with all the tools you need and you set it up in your own house. So I'm thinking it would have to be something like that with... Everyone has their own murder mystery character that also has part of the escape room. So maybe there's some type of person that has to do something. I don't know. I'm just thinking it's something where it sets up with your friends and there is that fear of someone in here is going to hose us, but I don't know. I, that's, that's how I don't know I am at this right now. I have no idea. I got to take off. This is a ton of fun, but I got to run. Sean, thanks for the time. Sorry, you got to go. It's Game of Thrones. You can just tell the truth. You have to go because of Game of Thrones. No, I don't mind missing a Game of Thrones episode. They just tell you what happened in the thing before the intro anyway. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. That, that's going to get some people to unsubscribe right there, making fun of Game of Thrones. That, that, almost, that almost made me unsubscribe. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's blasphemy. Blasphemy. All right, we'll get out of here then. Who needs you? So, Sean's gone. Now the fun can begin. <laughs> Yeah, whatever. I wanted to talk to you about how you got into writing and how you became who you are and all that jazz. But I think since uh, Captain Chessbeard's looking at me, we should just get down to elevator pitches. Okay. Because I think people would like. And so elevator pitches, you have a minute and you explain a game you've been playing lately. And normally we come up with a character that you are. So, for instance, you could be Christopher Walken, and you have to teach Netrunners. Not teach Netrunner, but give an elevator pitch for Netrunner. And there's a big distinction there, because it's not teaching how the game's played so much, because that's afterwards. It's more of, this is how you get someone to actually sit down and want to play the game. Okay. You have anything in mind? Yeah, I think I could probably pitch Dancing Eggs. Dancing Eggs? I don't even know what Dancing Eggs is! Good. Good. So I have to give you something to be. Do you have any preferences of who you'd uh, like to be? I'm, I'm bad at impressions, so I'm sure whatever you give me will all be equally bad. So it doesn't matter how good you are at your impressions. For instance, SBJ, our host, we gave him bear one time, and he would just say roar every at the end of every sentence, and that was literally it. Okay. Well, you are a farmer who can't find his chickens... <laughs> But somehow the egg supply has more than quadrupled. There's nothing but piles and piles of eggs everywhere, but no chickens. (laughs) It's going to be bad no matter what. So the classic line is you say, ding me, SBJ, and then we edit in the ding sound. So go for it. All right. Ding me, SBJ. What is the deal with all these eggs? I made him like Jerry Seinfeld on accident. That's my bad. He's not. It should be like Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> it's already so good. Keep going. I have so many dang eggs. There, but they're no chickens. This is utterly confusing. What should I do with this excess of eggs? Oh, hey, I got an idea. What if 
I took several of the eggs, put them in a carton, and then made two dyes. The first dye I would give to a friend and say, roll this dye, and they'd say, why would I do that? And I'd say, just wait, and they'd do it. And after they do it, that dye would show them one of uh, many different actions that would, if they can succeed at that action, result in them getting one of my fine, pristine, utterly mysterious, and not laid by a bird eggs. <laughs> so let's say they roll it, and there's a picture of a dye. That means the first person to grab the dye gets an egg. Or maybe there's a picture of a chicken with its mouth open. That means the first person to say cluck cluck gets an egg. Now why would you want an egg you may be asking yourself? The answer is simple. Eggs are points in this game. Well that sounds like a boring game you might think. But if you get an egg you then have to roll a second dice that tells you where on your body you must place this egg. And the egg is actually quite heavy and quite round and slightly uncomfortable to hold. So when you roll the dice, you might see, hey, it's got to go under my neck. It's got to go under my armpit, my legs. And when one person drops an egg, that's the end of the game. And you count how many eggs each person has. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that was that was the Taj Mahal of of elevators. But that was great, man. <laughs> I, for, I forgot. I forgot until literally the last 15 seconds when I was timed. Oh, yeah. Uh, you just went 30 yards. The, the best thing was Taj Mahal is not even tall. I should have come up with something. That was the Taj. It's a fancy elevator, not a very tall one. But a great glass elevator. You're right. Oh, man. So I have heard of this, actually. So, so the idea is if you're winning, you're going to have an ass load of eggs all over yourself. Is that the way it works? Yeah, you're going to have like one egg in your elbow, one egg under your neck, one egg between your legs, one egg between your other armpit. And eventually they just like all the all the uh, actions that get you more eggs initially seem really quaint and simple. But then they get way more, more complex and difficult to do once your mobility is restrained by these eggs. So, like, for example, one of them is first person run around the table gets an egg. And at the beginning, everybody's racing and running. And then by the end, like everybody's loaded down with eggs. And maybe there's one person that's skipping around slightly quicker than everybody else. And it's just a really fun sort of self-balancing thing because it's a physical game uh, that restrains your physicality the more you're winning. Oh, man. Does it tell you exactly where to put it as far uh -huh. as, like, what happens if you already have an egg in that spot? Yeah, put another one there. So you could have... You could have, like, two under your chin and just, like, whoops, all right, I guess we're... Because they're, 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 they're tactile enough in there, they have enough uh, friction on them that they can kind of stick to your skin a little bit. Um, so, like, you could fit a bunch of eggs everywhere. Per rumor, I heard that there's a harder-to-hold egg, like a wooden egg, that's worth more points. Yes, exactly. The wooden egg is much smoother. Uh, which which makes it a lot harder. It doesn't it doesn't stick against your skin. It's not as friction frictiony as the other ones. So yeah, if you get that one, you get two points, I think. Nice. Wow. How long have you been uh, playing that game? Is this relatively new? Have you had it for years? Has this been in your back pocket? It's at the uh, well. Rocket Jump basically has a game night the first uh, week, uh, first Thursday of every month, and we broke that one out. Uh, I think the last two game nights. So I've been playing it on and off for the last couple of months, I guess. I have to ask if you guys play two rooms in a boom. We have many times. Oh sweet. Oh man. That's amazing. Uh, well, that makes my tummy full of happiness. <laughs> well, hey, we are out of time. Captain Chessbeard's pointing his thing at me. So why don't you tell the listeners how they can get more Anthony Birch? Sure. I'm on Twitter at underscore Anthony Birch. That's basically the only place I am. And I'm on Rocket Jump. Actually, if you go to YouTube.com slash Rocket Jump, we'll be putting out a new short film every two weeks. Oh, yeah. And I heard you guys were doing World Championship Russian Roulette on Twitch. Yeah, yeah. We streamed World Championship Russian Roulette a couple times, and uh, people seem to really enjoy it. Man, I totally, totally missed out on those. I'm so bummed at it. But they liked it, huh? Yeah, they did. They did a lot. <sighs> so exciting. Well, 
Hey, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for letting me crush on you. Thanks for uh, <laughs> really indulging. And more than anything, thanks for bringing us World Championship Russian Roulette, man. Really no appreciate it. Uh, I'm Alan Gerding. You can find me on Facebook. I accept anyone's friend request because I'm entirely lonely. My name's Alan Gerding, A-L-A-N-G-E-R-Ding. I'm also on the tweets, at Alan Gerding. Please uh, send us your comments or questions. You can email us at podcast at Tuesday Night Games. Spelled with a K. Yeah, it's spelled with a K. And uh, I know I'm forgetting so much stuff. There's SBJ, there's Sean, but they're not here, so oh well. So this episode is... Finished. Hey, thanks for doing all our weird-ass stuff. Really appreciate it.